in uh, chapter 12 of volume 2 on the working period, Marx talks about how capital tries to liberate itself from long working periods and tries to shorten turnover times, but often does this by sinking more into fixed capital. How does this dynamic contribute to crisis tendencies? This is one of the neat things uh, in volume two. We get all this discussion of uh, not only temporality, but also spatiality. And the temporalities are contradictory and, you know, you want to shorten turnover time, but the only way you can do it is by putting in place fixed capital, which is going to last for a very long time. And so you get these completely disparate turnover periods uh, of the fixed capital versus everything else. That then, of course, uh, creates a tension that if you've committed capital to fixed capital of long life, then you've got to make sure that capital continues to be used. If there is technological change, and Marx in volume two tends to throw technological change, it keep it aside, but in that chapter he says, well, what happens when there's technological change which goes on? Well, this creates a, a real mess uh, because technological change may mean that fixed capital has to be retired before the end of its lifetime. You get what Marx calls moral depreciation of the, of the fixed capital. And you can, if that becomes intense enough, you can in fact get crises in the fixed capital investment structures of, of, of capital accumulation. And that is, I think, one of the things that you start to see investment cycles over fixed capitals emerging in the history of capitalism. And, and, and when you think about the fixed capital which is now embodied in a city, this is a huge amount of fixed capital. And it means you've got to keep business going to that city. When you get deindustrialization of a city like Detroit, how much fixed capital gets right, written off? And written off in big, and so anybody who holds the fixed capital loses money. And we've seen the same through deindustrialization of places like Sheffield and all the rest of it. And so there are lots of tensions in this fixed capital formation. Um, but the thing there is you then kind of say, well, therefore you shouldn't have fixed capital formation. But if you can't fix capital, then you can't speed up the rest. And so this is a tension. In, in the motion of capital, which I think is a very interesting one uh, to watch going on around you at any particular place and time. Okay, I thought I'd uh, start this week by uh, just trying to bring together some synthesis, if you like, of the materials we were covering from Volume 3, particularly on the credit system. Uh, so you can get a little bit of a, um, a better picture of how that might be relating to uh, volume 2, uh, but also to clarify, I think, uh, one of the concepts in uh, Volume 3, which is very important, but which I think uh, some people find it a little confusing, which is the idea of fictitious capital. And so, you know, I, I really regret that earlier in life I didn't have great magic marker skills because this really would require... I want to try and diagram this. Uh, um, let, us, let us suppose we have a, a big pool, which is the credit system, which is a big pool of credit money. Uh, and there's a lot of flows of money coming in here. The credit pool is being fed from all sorts of quarters and everybody's putting money in there because they want their 3% on their savings accounts or whatever. Now at the base of this 
there exists, uh, as Marx says, uh, the pivot of this whole thing is, is the central bank, or the Federal Reserve. And in Marx's kind of theory, that pivots on the gold as a commodity, as the money form. And this is the authentic representation of value, okay, uh, which underpins the central bank, and the central bank underpins that. So that's the sort of structure of the credit system. Um, now, then there's immediately the question of where does this money, which is being paid out by the credit system at 3%, where does it go to get its 5%? Well, one of the places it goes is immediately goes out here as loan capital. And as loan capital, it feeds into production, so it becomes the money which then gets the, uh, the commodities, which is labor power and means of production, and does the usual thing, you know, production, uh, then the, and then M plus delta M. Now, of course, all of this was analyzed, has been really analyzed very strongly in the first few chapters of, of volume two. So loan capital flows in here, and 5% flows back in this direction, back into the credit pool. Uh, there's another function of this, which is what might be called realization capital, which feeds in here. So this is realization capital, which, which, which is about discounting bills of exchange, right, and all the rest of it. So you help the realization by pro providing money uh, in here so that the, the Capitalists can get rid of their commodity immediately by the merchant's capital or by discounting a bill of exchange or something like that and keep the, the system going. They do it at a discount so that the full value uh, is a, a mix of what they take and what then flows back this way with, again, a 5% flow going back in this direction. So now, in the analysis of this system in volume two, we saw many moments when there were possibility of disruptions, right? So there is always a risk attached to this. And there's always the possibility that your loan may not be realized. I mean, somebody may come along and say, look, I'm going to invent a car that flies like a butterfly. And you say, all right, I'm going to lend you a lot of money to build it. And they can't build it, and so the, the money's lost. Uh, so there is always, this is always speculative, OK? Uh, so, so you're always you're always looking for some way in which to produce and realize the surplus value, and the same thing happens here. If you discount the the, the value uh, of the commodity, and you take a bill of exchange instead uh, on something that's going to be sold in India, so the bank holds the bill of exchange. Uh, it's discounted at five percent. Uh, but as holding the bill of exchange, and you know, the boat sinks or something like that, and, or, or somebody is, you know, Marx talks about the way in which uh, the, the, the cargo gets sold twice, you know, something like that happens. So you could lose there. So there's this, this is a, always, a speculative, always a speculative flow. And as a speculative flow, uh, it has a risk. And Marx uses 
a, a lot of particular words to talk about what can go wrong here when things get held up. He, he uses words like, this is, this is dead capital, he calls it at some point. He calls it uh, fallow at another point, or idle. It's, it's value which is either not managing to go from one stage to the next, but the other thing he does sometimes is he says this is devalued capital, i.e. it's not in motion, therefore it loses its value. But that can be temporary, because after a while maybe somebody comes along and picks it up and moves it again, so you can get a devaluation for a certain moment and then it gets revalued as you know, things get taken up. This would be true it's most true about the way in which labor uses means of production. Uh, this is means of production Marx calls dead labor. And dead labor remains dead until it gets animated by living labor. So this idea that something goes dead and then it's made alive again and gets resuscitated is actually rather important uh, to the way this, this flow works. So this is one of the uses of, of, of credit monies. And Marx does not at any point refer to this in terms of fictitious capital. Right? Even though it's speculative and can lose things and, you know, uh, and, and it's fictitious in the sense that you're holding a bill of exchange and you don't know where the goods are, those kinds of things, he never, he never uses the term fictitious. He, his, his fictitious capital refers to something rather different. And there are three, three forms I think we should look at. One is, okay, some of this money is lent to the state. Now, what does the state do with it? The state fights a war with it, okay, and it gets a military apparatus. This is not productive at all. So no, no surplus value is being produced here at all, right? So Marx kind of says, well, okay, you've lent the money to the state, and the state has to pay back 5% this direction. So for Marx, this is, this, is a, this is fictitious capital because it's money being lent to an enterprise that is not producing surplus value. That's in effect the de definition of fictitious capital. Yet it is also producing a rate of return for the credit money. So money capital is getting its 5%. So it looks like capital, but it's lending it to somebody to do something that has nothing whatsoever to do with the production of value. And that's what makes this fictitious. Now, at this point, there are all sorts of things that can go, go wrong here. The question is, where does the state get the money to pay the 5%? Well, it has to come out of uh, taxation. So it's either going to be taxation of bourgeois consumption, or it's going to be taxation of this. So you can sort of draw a line around here and put these two streams together and say, all right, here's taxation. It has other ways to get it, but this is the basic way in which it gets it. So the state will get its 5% by taxing surplus value. Surplus value is being produced up here, it does not produce any, it taxes some of it and then uses it and goes fight some war and, and destroys everything and that's, you know, yeah, that's what it does. It, it does other things too, we'll come back. So, so for Marx, this is fictitious capital. It's, it's investment in an enterprise that does not produce surplus value, yet it's an investment that gets a rate of return. Now the second area would be, and he uses this, is to, is to lend into consumption, and the, and the area here that I think is most obvious, uh, he met, which he mentions, is that suppose you send, lend to consumption, and this consumption is, is of housing, and 
you're lending in the form of a mortgage. Now, we, we have mentioned cases where people use their houses for, you know, as fixed capital in production, but by and large, houses are not used for that. They're just used to live in. This is the site of social reproduction. And in Marx's definition, and you may not like it, you know, but in Marx's definition, that is not producing surplus value. Right? Does not produce surplus value. So, and it's simply about lending to people so they can consume. Now, the big question is where, you know, where, where do these people get it, get the money to do it? Well, part of it is bourgeois consumption, and the other part is again uh, labor power. So you have another stream, both of, of these sorts, there's, there's part of it here, which is what Marx calls the circulation of revenues. So revenues are circulating in the form of the wages of the laborer and the surplus value that the, the bourgeois takes uh, uh, for himself or herself and, and, and actually then consumes it. Now, in that, so again, what you get here is a, a certain flow of revenues, a circulation of revenues, but there's no, in Marx's argument, there is no surplus value production going on here. Okay? So therefore, this is also a form of fictitious value because the 5% is coming back in this direction. So the, right? the third, third area is to invest in assets. And this has become terribly important in the contemporary world, but in Marx's time, the most obvious one was land. And you remember in that passage I gave you from volume one, he talks about things can have a price without having a value, such as unoccup unoccupied land or un un untouched land. So one of the things you can again do is you can lend to a landlord or something like that to purchase unoccupied land, and then you know the unoccupied land may then come into cultivation or come into utilization in urbanization or something like that and have an en enhanced value. So again, we will have speculation going on here in assets, and again, there will be a 5% flow back in, into, this, into, this, into this area. So these are the forms, if you like, of fictitious capital for Marx. They are flows of capital, money capital, into arenas that do not produce value. And that's the definition of fictitious capital. Now, each one of them can go a bit wrong. For instance, the state. At some point or other, the state may get into trouble because it, it, can't, it can't tax anymore and it hasn't got enough, it, it's borrowed too much. And of course, one of the things that states do when they find difficulty borrowing is to borrow more to pay off the last lot. So if you look at the figures on the national debt of almost any country, they're going like that, which means you're borrowing this year to pay off last year's debt. And then you borrow more the year after to pay off the year before. So it, it, it can accumulate in this, in this kind of fashion. So this is then a fictitious kind of thing. So, you can't, you can't go in here and, and sort of say, all right, you owe me, uh, you know, 50 pounds or something like that, therefore I'm going to go in and take a piece of the state for 50 pounds. I mean, which part of the state do you take, you know? And probably there's large chunks of the state that they want to get rid of anyway, so, you know, so... So, so, so that can go wrong, and then, and then of course there's, the, there's a risk attached to it. So right now, you're not looking at 5%, you're looking at real differences. So these different risks get priced in here. So 
Portuguese debt right now, you have to pay 8% to borrow because everybody's fearful it's going to, you know, they're going to default on their debts, so you have to reschedule the debts or whatever. So, you, you know, Portugal's paying 9%, Germany's paying 3% because everybody trusts Germany. The United States is paying 3% because for some reason or other everybody trusts the United States. <laughs> and and uh, so, so you can see that this, this, this can, go, can go badly wrong. And therefore there will be a crisis coming out of fictitious, out of the circulation of fictitious capital here. The same, you only got to think about the recent mess in mortgage markets to see what happens here. That revenues are, are not circulating in the way they were, that there's a loss of, of revenues going on and people haven't got the money to pay uh, off their mortgage. And so what happens is you get a, a mortgage crisis uh, of, of, uh, of this fictitious capital. But notice other things can go on here uh, which connects with, with this, which is what's the value of the asset? And what's the value of the house? Uh, so that, for example, I buy a house and for a million dollars in Florida and prices are going up and two years later I can sell it for two million dollars, it's fine. The big problem arises when you know, I took out half a million dollars uh, mortgage and suddenly the house I bought for a million dollars is only worth two hundred thousand dollars, in which case I am, quote, underwater, as they say, in, in terms of the mortgage. I can't dispose of the thing. So you can get crises arising out of all of these if there is, for some reason or other, the asset does not appreciate in the way you imagined it would, or the asset collapses, or, you know, or the revenues fall, or revenues or state revenues or state borrowing gets so high for some emergency reason like you know, going to war or this kind of stuff. So that, that seems to me to be the basic framework that, that Marx is, is setting out here about what is fictitious capital. Now to call it fictitious is, um, you know, make, makes it sound as if it's, it's, it's sort of invented and all this, but the, I, I want to get back to this idea that the idea of fictitious capital attaches to the idea of, of, of fetish, uh, the fetishism, that the imaginary is that these must be productive in some way, that real value must be produced in these areas. And one of the big questions that then arises, and this Marx does not address, is that is it possible that in these areas real value is being produced? And I think the answer is yes, certainly in the case of the state. For example, the state doesn't only go to war, and we see in the, in the chapters that are coming on that what, what's one of the things the state is, is involved in? Building roads. Well, roads are means of production, they're collective means of production. So actually the state is producing collective means of production for the capitalist. Physical infrastructures. But notice something here. The state is going to do that for 5%, for, the, for, for interest only. And the 5% will flow back in here and then be, so that passage where Marx talks about that a lot of means of production circulate through interest only is, is rather significant because that then lowers the cost of constant capital uh, in, in very significant ways. So the state can be productive. For example, in this country, what was the productive effect of building the interstate highway system in the 1950s and the 1960s? Actually, very significant, right? Very significant. 
And, and so there was a theory, and I'm, I'm rather surprised that Marx didn't actually mention it, because uh, in Second Empire Paris, uh, which Marx is very well aware of what was going on, one of the things that was going on was, of course, the building of the new boulevards. And these were actually considered by, by the government of the time as what was called productive state expenditures. So it is possible for the state to be part of the production of value. It's not entirely the case that there is no value production going on inside of the state apparatus. The big question which you have is, well, how much of it is being chucked away on useless things like wars and, and all the rest of it, and how much of it is really going into value production, and there's a kind of you know, complicated decision there as to you know, what, what, what is what. But it, I think it would be wrong to say that this is that all of the money that flows here is fictitious capital. A part of it is fictitious, and a part of it is actually moving into the productive circuit in, a, in, a, in very significant ways. And of course, it's being paid for. In other words, when capitalists come in here and they, uh, they invest, they have to pay something to utilize the collective means of production. Uh, if the roads are built and it's toll roads, then you have to pay the tolls on the roads. You know, so you, you have to pay for them. So this is a so so there's a different flow which which comes through here. Now, what about the world of consumption? We've had the argument, particularly around volume one. You know, to what degree is household work productive of value, and in what sense? And Marx, of course, said, well, it's not productive of value not because it was useless or irrelevant or anything of that kind, but because capital does not want to pay for it and will not pay for it. Okay. I mean, in, in, in Capital Volume 1, Marx basically says, all the costs of social reproduction are essentially have to be borne by the labourer. We, we pay the wage, and that is all we want to be concerned with. We don't want to be concerned with, you know, who takes care of grandma and all of that kind of stuff. That's your business. That's totally your business. And, and so capital, right throughout its history, has tried to externalize all those costs of social reproduction and actually treat them as if they have nothing to do with value creation. So when Marx says the household sector is not productive of value, it's not he's making a value judgment about that. He's saying that's what capital thinks. That's how capital acts. You know, and, and, and people get mad at Marx, and my response is, you should get mad at capital, not Marx. I mean, he, he's, 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 he's the messenger, and, 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 and he's telling you what they do and what they want to do. Now, you know, what are the Republicans proposing in, the next, in this big budget that just come up? Well, it's get rid of all of those social costs of production that have been internalized inside of the state and also internalized for capital. Get rid of it all put it back to the territory where Marx described it, which is, well, they just want to pay the wage and then let everybody else take care of themselves. You know? And, and uh, you know, and when you kind of say, well, the wage should actually then incorporate enough money to cover costs of social reproduction, capital kind of says, well, you know, I'm not really interested in you giving me that story. That's your problem, not my problem. So, the world of capital is very much about externalizing costs so that it does not have to bear them. 
And as it does not have to bear them, then what goes on in that realm is none of its concern, and therefore, as far as capital is concerned, that is not going to be productive of value. Now, the argument which is often made in, in, the, in the feminist literature from the 1970s onwards was, well, but there's a lot of things that go on and work there which actually then can help capital by reducing the value of labour power. That is, if the household labour picks up, and people not only work 48-hour weeks, but they also come home and they work like crazy to, you know, on their reproduction, then capital says, thanks very much, we can pay you less. So the value of labour power is highly dependent upon what goes on in this realm. And I think this is a very, this is a very interesting discussion and debate, and I, you, know, you, know, you can take whatever position you want. You either say, well, actually, we should take much more care to look very, very closely at what's going on in this realm. So, so, both in this case and in this case, there are certain questions arise about what, what's going on in this realm which may be contributing to the production of value and surplus value. I mean, my own view of this, for what it's worth, is that this does not produce value, but it helps produce surplus value. And exactly like fixed capital does not produce value, it helps to produce surplus value. So, what happens here does not produce value, but it does produce surplus value for the capitalist. Precisely for the reasons I mentioned, that if somehow or other people uh, start making their own bread and, and all that kind of stuff, and they you know, do a tremendous amount of work inside of the household, as opposed to know, sitting down on a sofa and kind of watching TV all the time, if they do a tremendous amount of work, uh, labour within the household, then, then actually that, that does have the effect of, of, of capital kind of saying, oh, well, you can do with less or being very moralistic at you and saying you shouldn't be sitting on the couch, you should be out there cooking and doing all those kinds of things and blah blah blah. You know, so, so I think that this is a, a very important issue. The, the same applies a little bit to, to assets, and that is going to come up in, in, in one of the chapters that's, that's to come, because what happens with assets is you can kind of say, well, this land is unoccupied. Uh, it therefore has no value, because no labour is embodied in it. But actually, think about this for a moment and say, well, how close is the nearest highway? Labour is embodied in the highway, and the highway is not on the land, but on the other hand, if the highway is near the land, then the land value goes up. Right? So things go on on the land which are actually about, you know, again, physical infrastructures and, and so on, which are actually contributing to the production of, of, of value, and we're going to see some examples of that in, in the chapters that follow. So, uh, is this, is this a, a clear understanding of, of what's meant, what, what Marx is meaning by fictitious capital, and how we might use this, this category? In other words, you just don't use it and kind of say, oh, it's all fiction, you know, it's, it, it's, it has a, a sort of technical, technical meaning. Maybe you have some questions about that. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask about two sort of separate phenomena that haven't been covered yet. Something for sort of like bank leverage they don't have. Yeah. Is that something about that's just about assets, just devalued assets? There's a lot of messing around that goes on in here. Of uh, you know, I, I didn't want to get get in, get into all of that. You know, I mean, I just I, I'm trying to simplify as much as I can. But there's never been enough gold in the economy since I don't know when to actually cover all of the stuff that's really needed. This has always been a base. And then the private holding of gold disappeared with World War II, and then it ceased to be even the basis of, of, of this. So you, you wipe this out as a basis, and then the central bank 
And then we get into the problem that you know, Marx mentions of what happens when the central bank is stupidly constructed or they make the bad decisions or something of that kind, as the 1844 Bank Act did uh, in exacerbating the crisis of 1847-48. And you know, there's a lot of argument about, well, you know, the Federal Reserve policy and actually even going back on the gold standard in the 1920s and 1930s had a lot, had a lot to do with the Great Depression. So bad decisions around here can actually exacerbate a, a depression in certain ways. And everybody's looking at the central bank, the Fed and, and the European Central Bank and sort of saying, you know, what are they, what are they doing? Because we've lost, you know, we've wiped out the, the, the gold commodity at the basis of it. The leveraging stuff, of course, is also going on because, you know, there's, since you're, you're working here not only with savings, you're also working here with deposits which are non-savings, you always kind of figure that, that nobody's going to withdraw it all at the same time and therefore you can always lend out money even though you really don't have it. So there's a lot of you know, credit creation, credit monies get created in here and of course one of the, one of the theories by the way which comes, comes about is that if the state borrows very high, in a very high rate and this rate goes to 7% you know, without any, why would anybody put loan capital up there at 5% when you can get 7% from putting it into state debt? So there's a, what they call a crowding out theory that goes on, that, that if the state, this is one of the arguments against the state borrowing too much, is because if they borrow a great deal, then the, you know, given the supply and demand are going to set the interest rate, then supply and demand will be such as everybody's going to have to pay 7%, which can get very burdensome up here. Same thing can happen, you know, in, in other areas. So, what happens to the interest rate uh, becomes uh, also r rather important. And, you know, but again, those are complications that arise in the system. Yeah. What, what would Mark say in terms of derivatives? What value is produced from those? Derivatives go back a long way, uh, and to some degree, what you see him beginning to say, he doesn't talk about derivatives directly, but in agriculture you get, do, you, mean, but that's a bit distinct from derivatives. Yeah, but, but, but a lot of derivatives come from f our, our insurance on futures. But second or third order. Yes, right. He would say what most of us say about what even Warren Buffett says, these are weapons of mass financial destruction, you know, I mean, uh, so he'll have a great, great time with that, I'm sure, but there is a form of derivative and, and hedging and, and futures which has always been around in this system and, and actually you can see some of it in the discounting of bills of exchange of stuff that's going to India and, and uh, he doesn't actually talk about any insurance on whether it got there or not. Uh, so he doesn't really go, go into that. Yeah. It appears with all the interest going in to credit that there would be a tendency for credit to monopolize or for a sort of anti-market to form in order for it to manipulate these different rates. Mm -hmm. And then what is, so is that one question, but then how does that also relate to something I might remember or misremember that as a class, capitalists, many of the same individuals hold money capital yeah. and productive capital. So yeah. Um, I don't know how to think about that anymore. Well, yeah, again, I, you know, I was just trying to simplify here around, you know, so when you, when you get into here, there is that other issue we raised last time as to, you know, the distinction between uh, the, the, the money side of it and the money flow 
and, and getting your 5% anyway, that way, and, and, and whether you are going to engage in the production process or you're going to turn it over to somebody else who will get profit. So there's a, there's a relationship between profit and, and interest here. Now, interest is a portion of the surplus value that's produced. The remainder is the profit. Now, is the surplus value that's left over then has to be divided into revenues for the bourgeois so they can you know, reproduce themselves, uh, but then also capital that can come back into circulation and continue to circulate. So, and, then, and then there is this choice at this point, do I, do I keep on you know, producing or do I just sort of say, okay, I'm going to take my money and just sit there and get my 5%. And as Marx kind of says, you know, uh, industrialists in Britain showed a lot of signs that after they made a bit of money they were just going to sit back and take their 5%. And, and which then produces a ridiculous situation where everybody's trying to live off interest when nothing's, no surplus value is being produced, which you know, then collapses uh, the whole, whole system. So at that point he says you know, somebody's going to have to go back into production and actually engage with production. So yeah, there's, a, there's, there's, there's that which goes on at that point, so there's another complication about the relationship between profit of enterprise and interest on the money capital, uh, which is the dual form uh, which exists here. Okay, well, let's leave that. I just hope that clarifies a little bit what Marx is doing. But I, I want you also to think, as we come back into Volume 2, what the relationship of a lot of this is to what's going on in Volume 2. Because one of the things that Marx argues very strongly is that the credit system while it has all of these you know, possibilities of disruption and, and uh, there can be possibilities of uh, crashes and all the rest of it, but it has these positive virtues in relationship to capital accumulation that have to do with speeding up the turnover time, uh, of lessening the transaction costs that are involved, of accelerating things, of collecting together capital in sufficiently large quantities so you can form a joint stock company that can build or something as complicated as a railroad, that can actually then organize itself so it doesn't actually get a rate of return on what it's done for four or five years. In other words, you can imagine, you know, so there are all sorts of things that the credit system does. And, and I think that if you go back over where we've been in volume two of capital and collect together all the time, Marx kind of says, well, the credit system now becomes rather significant, then it, it seems to me you, you need uh, to think a little bit about the, 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 not the productive capacity of the, of the credit system, but its capacity uh, to smooth things out uh, and, at the, you know, and it's, it's like the old, to, to, to spread risk as they say, and it genuinely does that to some degree, but at the same time, it also internalizes risk. And when you start to talk about the derivatives and you start to talk about the stock market and you start to talk about asset values, you can see the way in which the internalization of that risk can easily get out of control, particularly uh, when you're dealing with a situation where there's, there's the disciplinary apparatus that used to be there in terms of the gold standard and, and, and the gold commodity has, has disappeared. So all you need is the Federal Reserve to go to sleep, which it did for about 10 years with the Delphic Alan Greenspan saying everything's fine. So all you need is something like that and, and, and risk which is supposed to be spread gets internalized and builds up and then you get the explosions that, 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 that Marx uh, talks about. And again, 
I, I would want to, to emphasize a little bit that you know, some people have kind of said, why are, we, why are we doing volume three in the middle of volume two? Well, I think that actually the, 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 the technical stuff that's in volume two, it, you don't get the idea of what kinds of explosions it can lead to. Whereas when you go into volume three, you can kind of see systematically how this can actually then lead to these explosions. And since we've been through an explosion, you know, recently, it seemed to me pretty useful to put in, you know, how this technical basis which we're dealing with in volume two can actually be then uh, the seedbed for the sorts of uh, crises we've just been through and the kinds of crises that Marx was analyzing in 1847-48 and 1857-58. So that you can, you know, see and, and then also uh, you can see who the agents are and what, what kinds of class factions uh, can, can form in this, in this process. Okay, so let's leave it there and, uh, then, and then come back to, to volume two. And the three chapters we're doing, um, I think you should have found them miraculously easy to understand. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you have absolutely no questions, right? Because it's, it's clear and lucid <laughs> and everything else. Uh, the only thing I think it's worth doing with these chapters, because they are so, I think, uh, clear and, and, and lucid, is to talk a little bit about some of their implications and what might flow from some of these implications. Uh, so chapter 12 is about the working period, uh, which is the number of working days it takes to produce something, and Marx uh, deals with these two examples of cotton spinning and locomotive production, and then defines the working period on page 308 as a succession of more or less numerous interrelated working days. I call this a working period. If we speak of the working day, then we mean the length of time for which the worker must daily expend his labor power, must work. If we speak of the working period, on the other hand, this means the number of interrelated working days that are required in a particular line of business to complete a finished product. And as we see in the next chapter, the working period is not the same as the production period. The working period is the number of active, it's the hours, if you like, where labor is actually working and, and, and incorporating value. And as soon as labor stops, that's no longer part. So if it's you're working on a 12-hour day, then labor stops at the end of 12 hours, then, so you can add it up in this, in this kind of way. Uh, and longer working periods, that has impacts on uh, the means of production you need and the amount of money you need to be up front. So if you have a long working period, like building a locomotive, you need a lot more capital up front, unless, of course, the credit system is there, as it says on 309. It is otherwise with the circulating components of the capital advance. The labor power bought for this week is used up during the week, and has objectified itself in the product, it must be paid for at the end of the week. And this capital outlay on labor power is repeated weekly over the three months, although the expenditure of this portion of capital in the one week does not enable the capitalist to cover acquisition of labor in the next week. New additional capital must be spent each week in payment for labor power, and if we set aside all credit relations, the capitalist must be able to lay out wages for the whole period of three months even though he pays them only in weekly doses. And so it goes on in this kind of way. And like I said, I'm not really so concerned uh, with it. But 
It's at the bottom of 310 onwards, where Marx actually uh, starts to talk about, uh, he says, at the less developed stages of capitalist production, enterprises that require a long working period, and, the and thus a large ca capital outlay for a longer time, particularly if they can be conducted only on a large scale, are often not pursued capitalistically at all. Roads, canals, etc., for example, were built at the cost of the municipality or state. In other words, we're back in this diagram here where the state actually provides the means of production. Now, when the state does it and when it's done by private property, private capital, when joint stock companies are organized and so they can actually preempt this and start to do it in the private sector, you know, it depends, uh, as he says, on the concentration of, of capital. Alternatively, he says, products which require a long working period for their fabrication are manufactured only to a very minor extent with the financial means of the capitalist himself. Again, the credit system is going to be important. In the construction of houses, for instance, the private individual for whom the house is being built pays advances to the builder in successive portions. He thus pays for the house bit by bit. In the era of developed capitalism, however, where on the one hand massive capitalists are concentrated in the hands of individuals and on the other hand the associated capitalists, joint stock companies, steps onto the scene alongside the individual capitalists, where credit too is developed, it is only in exceptional cases that a capitalist builder still builds houses to order for individual clients. This is a very important transition in the whole history of urbanization, which occurred during the 19th century. Before that, houses were built to order. You know, I needed a house and so, you know, you find a builder and the builder builds it. After that you get this speculative building setting in and so you find large areas of London which get just, you know, people build a, a whole estate. Uh, it's a very large area and they, they build 500 houses on a large estate. And you can go around 19th century, you go around London and you find all these 19th century areas which are just built as large estates. It was speculative building. It wasn't built for anybody in particular, it was just built for the market. And then, of course, it sold uh, you know, to individuals uh, who maybe get a mortgage or maybe don't, depending upon the situation. Uh, and he says, uh, and this transition really had a big impact on urban, uh, urban life. Towards the bottom of 311, whereas previously a contractor might have built three or four houses at a time on speculation, he now has to buy an extensive piece of land erect on it up to 100 or 200 houses and thus involve himself in an undertaking that exceeds his own means some 20 to 50 times over. Funds are procured by taking out a mortgage. This is one of the significance of, of, of fictitious capital. Again, fictitious is not just something that, that's, that's, that's not being engaged, it's, it's, it's very much engaged. So the funds are procured by taking out a mortgage and this money is put at the contractor's disposal bit by bit as the building of the houses progresses. If a crisis breaks out, bringing the payment of these instalments to a halt, then the whole undertaking generally collapses. Well, we've just seen that, right? So you, I don't have to tell you all about that, you just go look at what happened in the housing market 2007-2008. Uh, but, notice on the next page he says, it is impossible nowadays for any contractor to get along without speculative building and on a large scale at that. And he mentions these areas of London, uh, Belgravia, Tyburnia and the countless thousands of villas around London have been built in this way by speculative anticipation of demand for houses. And again there's a relationship of all of this, of these large-scale jobs, to the concentration, and he doesn't say it here, but the centralization of capital that goes on with the aid of the, of the, credit, of the credit system. Uh, 
and when and then says, and when the development of the credit system offers the capitalist the convenient expedient of advancing and thus risking other people's capital instead of his own. The credit system is, is about other people's capital. And, and this is very, very important. It is self-evident, however, that whether the capital advance for production belongs to the person who uses it or not has no effect on the speed and time of turnover. Now the rest of this chapter is then taken up really with talking about, you know, how do you shorten the working period? Clearly, the working period is not the same as the production period, but you, you, you know, it's a key part of the production period, and therefore if you need to shorten the, the production period, you need to shorten the working period. How do you do that? Uh, and he then talks about various ways in which that can be done through cooperation, division of labour, application of machinery, uh, and uh, you, by that way you can shorten the working period for interconnected acts of production. And then, you know, it's about the middle of the page, thus machinery shortens the building time of houses, bridges, etc., reaping and threshing machines, etc., shorten the working period required to transform ripened corn into a finished commodity, improve shipbuilding techniques resulting in greater speed, shorten the turnover time of the capital invested in shipping. So you can shorten it in these, these sorts of areas. Uh, and it can sometimes be done by an extension of cooperation. Uh, and he talks about the completion of a railway is hastened by setting afoot great armies of workers and tackling the job from many different points in space. Uh, there are some uh, fabulous examples of fixed capital and dams, this kind of thing, being built by massive numbers of labourers in, I mean if you look at the Three Gorges Dam in China, uh, the application of huge amounts of labour in cooperation was, got it done relatively quickly. But in other uh, situations, uh, well again a lot of this depends, he says to the, towards the bottom, about the way in which uh, the concentration of capital, uh, and again at the top of 313, insofar as credit mediates, accelerates and intensifies the concentration of capital in a single hand, it contributes to shortening the working period and with this also the turnover time. But then there's a the problem of how do you, you know, how do you accelerate the turnover time when you're dealing with, uh, you know, sheep and oxen and all this kind of stuff? And there's, you know, then he gives some examples of this uh, where where these sorts of things can can happen. Uh, and the, the final example is the the, the breeding of, of sheep, the Bakewell system. Uh, in Bakewell system, he says at the top of three fifteen one-year-old sheep can already be fattened, instead of waiting three years you, you do it in one year, and in any case they are fully grown before the second year has elapsed. By se careful selective breeding, Bakewell, farmer of Dishley Grange, North Leicestershire, reduced the bone structure of his sheep to the minimum necessary for their existence. These sheep are called the New Leicesters. And then kind of says the methods that shorten the working time working period differ greatly in the extent, and it, it differs within industries and, and, and between industries. And, and I, th I came across a thing on the, the web which is a really wonderful little example of this, so I think uh, Chris if you can uh, show this little example, it'll be fun.
saw the Chinese do it. <laughs> and uh, you want to know what the competitive advantage of the Chinese is over America right now? They said precisely they can do things like that. You know. A bit astonishing, right? What? It's not just cheap labor, skilled labor. Skilled labor. Skilled labor. Very interesting, you know, to think a little bit about the nature of the labor process that's involved. And who's involved and what the intensity of labor is, by the way, which is one of the big characteristics of Volume 1 that sort of emerges out of Volume 1 as you go through. The intensity of labor is just as important as the absolute length. But, and obviously it's a 24-hour it's shift labor. Highly concentrated, skilled labor with all of the equipment necessary to do it. Very, very cooperation is obviously incredibly well pre-planned, and and uh, you know. But it, it just shows you about. I mean, the Chinese have been building whole cities, and in you know, three or four years. But and, and you can see how that that can be done. And uh, you know, when you look at what goes on in this country, the Boston Big Dig took what's like 15 years or something like that. You know, I mean, this is this is a, an amazing sort of example of of a working period. Now, obviously, there's a lot of other stuff that goes into it. It's all prefabricated, of course, and and so you've got all the working period that goes into the prefabrication. So you've got all those sorts of things to take into account. But on the other hand, what you see here is is the lengths to which people go. But, notice something. How much capital do you save by doing it that fast? Okay. I, I mean, you know, you, you don't even have to pay laborers a, a week's work. What you've got to pay them is, 90, you know, you, well, you do it, 90 hours. You, you, you have to pay 90 hours for labor. That's it. And, and uh, so it, it's, it's a very, I think, a very telling uh, kind, kind of example. Uh, of uh, what you can do about a working period. And, and then, but then what I think Marx is doing is, is putting this the other way around and asking the question, why is there this perpetual search to speed up like this? Where is it coming from? And I think what he does rather beautifully is to lay out why this sort of thing goes on. I mean, we look at it and we just kind of admire it, you know, or, or horrified by it, whichever, you know, and kind of say, my God, how on earth could you do that? And, and say, so this is a pretty astonishing thing to have done. But, but at the same time, I think Marx will say, well, it's not astonishing at all. You will go to, you know, capital will go to any lengths to, do, to speed up and do things of this kind. And in competition, it becomes absolutely crucial. I mean, what kind of firm could you know, let's suppose you wanted to build a hotel in New York and these people come along, came along and said, okay, we'll do it for you. <laughs> As opposed to some American contractor who says, well, it'll take six months or two years or something like that. They kind of say, well, you know, we can do it in 90 hours. Who would, who would you take? So this is, this is I think, what, what is so interesting about working period. And I, I, often, I often think it would be very interesting for somebody to write a dissertation on the history of working periods. It really would be. I, I mean, in, in the history of capitalism from I mean, particularly in, in relationship to urbanization, how long did it take to build an estate? You know, how long does it take now? How long does it take in China to do it? You know, those kinds of things. Chapter 14 of Volume 2, Marx uh, singles out uh, communication and transportation as
sort of special sectors that have sort of important knock-on effects on the rest of the economy. How, how do you think about his, his approach to these two sectors? Well, at first sight, it seems a little strange. I mean, he kind of says that, uh, you know, most things that go on in the marketing process are not productive of value. They're necessary costs of circulation. Uh, but with transport and communications, he says, no, they add value. So they're productive of value. And I, it, it's often seemed rather curious to me as to exactly why he decided they were productive of value and, I don't know, retailing was not. But his argument is that the commodity is not complete until it's arrived at market. That if it's at the factory gate, it's not complete because it hasn't got to its market place yet. So there's that. But on the other hand, this is a separate kind of addition of value that has nothing to do with the original production process. So it's a complicated kind of argument uh, he's making here. And I'm sometimes not sure that it all kind of quite adds up right. But to me, I think the whole kind of question of spatial organization and uh, the production of space becomes a very important aspect of the dynamics of, of, of capitalism. Okay, so the next chapter is on uh, production time which of course incorporates the working period but is longer than the working period and so we're really dealing with uh, the difference between working period which we've already looked at and the, the general production time. Um, and one of the things that concerns Marx a great deal here is this whole kind of question as he says on the first page that what is involved is rather an interruption independent of the length of the labor process, an interruption conditioned by the nature of the product and its production during which the object of labor is subjected to natural processes of shorter or longer duration and has to undergo physical, chemical or physiological changes while the labor process is either completely or partially suspended. Obviously, he says on the next page, the working period and the production period do not coincide. Uh, and the turnover period is then extended according to the length of the, that part of the production time that does not consist of working time. And he gives some ex examples of this, like the Bessemer examples and so on. Uh, this distinction, he says on 3.18, between production time and working time is particularly important in agriculture for, for obvious reasons. Uh, there's a lot of days of the year when labor is not being applied uh, and typically uh, many agricultural processes are labor-intensive for very short bursts and then nothing, uh, which then creates all sorts of uh, problems of seasonal labor, uh, which he talks about briefly, and he relies very much uh, here uh, on uh, a gentleman called Kirchhoff, is uh, one of his major sources. But clearly, um, there has to be some way in which uh, you know, people who are intensively employed in, uh, in a labor process for a very short period of time have something else to do for the rest of the year. So he talks about, at the bottom of 318, um, he talks about the existence of particular cottage industries and that they've grown up everywhere in the villages. Uh, there are villages, for instance, in Russia in which all the peasants have been for generations either weavers, tanners, shoemakers, locksmiths, cutlers, etc. Uh, you know, precisely because you need in, in, you know, industrial activity to fill up the working year. Now, the question of seasonal labor uh, and seasonable migration 
labor is, is, is a real problem for labor, but again, I think what Marx is emphasizing here is it's a problem for labor, uh, but not necessarily for capital. If there are plenty of surpluses of labor around, you can always you know, use the surplus when you need it and, and forget about it for the rest of the year. Uh, and these, in the 19th century, certainly, uh, there was something called the dead season, even in, in industrial activity. Uh, for instance, in Second Empire Paris, uh, the cotton produced in the United States would be delivered to the United States in November, uh, something of that kind. During that period, uh, the cotton, the people from the United States, the, the factors and the sellers would purchase a lot of things in Paris, like furniture and other goods, and take them back to the United States. So there was a strong seasonal trade, which depended upon when the cotton uh, came, came in. And the result was that there were periods, uh, particularly in the summertime, which were dead, dead season, where hardly anybody was being employed in many of the industries that were, were involved in, in you know, cotton goods and, and, and all the rest of it. So seasonal labor, and it still, of course, continues to be so. We, we see con contracted labor in agriculture. Uh, in the United States is very uh, strong streams from the Caribbean and from Mexico uh, come up into Mexico following the harvest and the same would be true on the east coast of the United States. Uh, if you go to uh, Maryland Eastern Shore you'll find all of these kinds of huts and uh, the migrant labor will live in, live in them for I don't know two or three weeks during harvest time and then just move on. Uh, people picking apples in the Carolinas to New England and they move with the harvest and you know, grape pickers in France move with the harvest and all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of migrant labor which is involved and, and of course the organization of that in California and agriculture of the East Coast is very strong. It's not so, it's not so strong an issue in, in the Midwest because a lot of the industry, you know, a lot of agribusiness is mechanized and the wheat harvest does not require, you know, large uh, quantities of, of, of labor now as it used to because so so this is an issue, and, the, and, and, and so the seasonality of the labor connects to the distinctive character of the production times which exist in various uh, sectors of industry, some of which are agrarian, uh, and some of which, of course, are very, very long term, and Marx gets interested in the whole kind of question of, of forestry and wood supplies on 321, 322. Uh, and the tendency, uh, of course, always is to end up deforesting things, you know. And, and uh, I mean, why would you bother to plant something when it's not going to be ready to be harvested until 150 years' time? I mean, the time horizon is so... The whole kind of question of what goes on with forestry or something of that kind is, is a really big uh, uh, issue that has, has to be uh, sort, of, sort, of, sort of worked out and gives... And again, he has several quotes from uh, Kirt. Kirchhoff uh, on all of this. These questions of seasonality and, and disruptions and production times are also factored in on 3.23 where he starts to talk about um, uh, uh, kind of trying to smooth things out by, by keeping stocks on hand. So he talks there about the, the formation of a stock which is a, you know, sufficient raw materials which are there to, to keep things flowing. And he says, in considering the formation of a stock, we've already noted that a greater or lesser quantity of potential productive capital is required, i.e. a quantity of means of production destined for production, which has to be held in reserve 
in a greater or lesser amount in order to go into the production process bit by bit. But obviously there's an incentive for capital to try to reduce stocks. Uh, we noted in this connection that with a capital investment of a given scale, the size of this production stock depends on the greater or lesser difficulty of its replacement, its, relatively, its relative proximity to the supplying markets, the development of means of transport and communication. All these circumstances affect the minimum capital that must exist in the form of productive stock. What follows from this, it seems to me, is uh, uh, an, an interest in capital bound to, bound to be interested in qu questions like inventory control, uh, uh, just-in-time systems, uh, so that you, you, you flow things so the, the amount of... And if you tie up a lot of, of capital in, in, in means of production which are just lying idle, then, then that's no use to you. That's dead capital fallow capital, idle capital, devalued capital, but, but if you can reduce that, then you can reduce the total amount of capital you need to produce a surplus value. So the capital you lay out is, is very much affected by the need for these reserve stocks. Uh, and uh, there is an, a strong incentive, therefore, within the capitalist system uh, to pursue means of of, of reducing stocks on hand. But a lot of this he says uh, on 324, whether a larger or smaller stock of implements is generally needed is principally determined by local conditions. Where there are no craftsmen or shops in the vicinity, a greater stock must be kept than those that are to be found in the locality or very close by. And this is obviously going to come up in the next chapter where he talks about the efficiency of flows within transport systems as being rather significant uh, to the reduction of, of, of stocks. So this is, a, um, if you like, the general kind of, kind of argument here. I don't think there's anything uh, particularly difficult about it, but again, I think it's important always to say that actually a lot of the technological and organizational changes that we see in, uh, under capitalism are about trying to save on the amount of capital you need to, to produce a surplus value. And one of the ways in which you can save on that capital is to, you know, reduce stocks, keep production system running smoothly. Uh, don't, to, to the degree that you can, overcome the fact that there is a, there's bound to be a certain amount of dead production time. And, and if necessary, adopt techniques which keep capital and labor fully employed during the year. Uh, even in the face of the fact that you have these other, you know, these other considerations. So uh, this is one of the problems that capital has historically faced in exactly the same way there's a sort of a history of working period. I think there's a whole kind of history of innovations, organizational innovations and, and the like, uh, which are about trying to reduce the production time uh, in ways that, you know, are beyond what, is, what happens as you reduce the working, working time. So again, I don't think there's anything incredibly difficult about this. Anybody want to raise any questions about this chapter? Or is it all self-evident? Okay, well, let's get into the next chapter, Circulation Time, which is uh, one of my favorite chapters. And what I've done is, because uh, here we're getting into spatial organization and space relations and, and transport and communications. And as, as uh, I've noted before, the theme of circulation of capital in space and what happens to the geography of capital accumulation is a theme 
uh, that is broached in Volume 2 of Capital more than it is in some other places, but it's also broached in, in, in a few other places as well. And I, I've passed around some, some copies. Everybody got a copy of uh, these? Um, first off, you know, Marx was under, uh, this comes up again and again, but the, the passages in the Communist Manifesto uh, about uh, the bourgeoisie and the world market are, I think, always a, a, a rather brilliant reminder that one of the missions of the bourgeoisie is not simply uh, accumulation for accumulation's sake, as he puts it in Volume 1, but also the creation of, of the world market, or you want to call it what we call it now, globalization. Um, and this passage in the Communist Manifesto, I think, is really a great example of, of Marx's writing about that. The need for a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the entire surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, establish connections everywhere. The bourgeoisie has, through its exploitation of the world market, given a cosmopolitan character to production and consumption in every country. To the great chagrin of the reactionists, it has drawn from under the feet of industry the ground on which it stood. All old established national industries have been destroyed or are daily being destroyed, which is a good way to look at what's been happening in the industrialization of the United States over the last 30 years. They are dislodged by new industries whose introduction becomes a life and death question for all civilized nations, by industries that no longer work up indigenous raw material, but raw material drawn from the remotest zones, industries whose products are consumed not only at home but in every quarter of the globe. In place of the old ones, satisfied by the productions of the country, we find new ones, requiring for their satisfaction the products of distant lands and climes. In place of the old local and national seclusion and self-sufficiency, we have intercourse in every direction, universal interdependence of nations, and as in material, so also in intellectual production. The intellectual creations of individual nations become common property. National one-sidedness and narrow-mindedness become more and more impossible, and from numerous national and local literatures there arises a world literature. Obviously Marx is being a bit uh, optimistic here about uh, the disappearance of nationalism, uh, and uh, actually what's interesting I think in world history is the way in which globalization and nationalism have been perpetually balancing each other. And as we see right now, with new phases of globalization, so we're seeing the emergence of very strong nationalist move movements to counterbalance them. So there's been much more of a balance in this than, 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 than Marx. Uh, he also kind of said, proletarians have no interest in nation, they have no country, uh, which is just not true. You know? so, so, so he's a bit too optimistic on that side of thing. But he then goes on to say, the bourgeoisie, by rapid improvement of all instruments of production, by the immensely facilitated means of communication, draws all, even the most barbarian nations, into civilization. Well, you wish that were true, but... The cheap prices of its commodities are the heavy artillery with which it batters down all Chinese walls, with which it forces the barbarians' intensely obstinate hatred of foreigners to capitulate. It compels all nations, on pain of extinction, to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. It compels them to introduce what it calls civilization into their midst, to become bourgeois themselves. In one word, it creates a world after its own image. I mean, I think this, this idea that, that, that Marx and Engels have in the Communist Manifesto about you know, the, 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 the creation of the world market is a, is a very powerful idea. It crops up again and again in capital, but nearly always in just sort of sidebars. You know, well, they're going to produce the world market. Well, the world market is... Is, is beginning there. Then in the Grundrisse, he has, I think, some even more explicit things, and I think it's important to look at 
exactly how he formulates it. He says, whether I extract metals, this is on 524, whether I extract metals from mines or take commodities to the site of their consumption, both movements are equally spatial. The improvement of the means of transport and communication likewise fall into the category of the development of the productive forces generally. This is, I think, a very important idea, that when you talk about the productive forces in Marx, you should always be prepared, I think, to include in it uh, the improvement of the means of transport and communication. And, and th this is a productive force, which is very powerful, and as we've seen, transport and communication is a productive of value also. So it's both a productive force and also productive of, 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 of value. So he then goes on, the more production comes to rest on exchange value, hence on exchange, the more important to the physical conditions of exchange the means of communication and transport become for the cost of circulation. Capital by its nature drives beyond every spatial barrier. Thus the creation of the physical conditions of exchange, of the means of communication and transport, the annihilation of space by time, becomes an extraordinary necessity for it. Further on, the circulation time therefore determines value only insofar as it appears as a natural barrier to the realization of labor time. It thus appears as a barrier to the productivity of labor. Thus, while capital must on one side strive to tear down every spatial barrier to intercourse, i.e. to exchange and conquer the whole earth for its market, it strives on the other hand to annihilate this space with time, i.e. to reduce to a minimum the time spent in motion from one place to another. The more developed the capital, therefore, the more extensive the market over which it circulates, which forms the spatial orbit of its circulation. The more does it strive to simultaneously for an even greater extension of the market and for greater annihilation of space by time. Now, this phrase, annihilation of space by time, I think it's a very uh, interesting one. Uh, it's not some metaphysical thing, you know, ontological transformations, the universe or something like that. It's not, that's not what he's talking about. Um, what he's talking about is that value is socially necessary labor time. Therefore, capital actually measure, measures space in terms of the time it takes to move across it. Okay. And actually, it also uses something else, as he mentions, which is the costs. Well, so what this does is to produce a relative, what we call a relative notion of space. That is, it's relative to the time it takes to move and to the costs of, of traversing it. And that's the way in which capital measures things. And there's a very clear distinction in, in this chapter between what we call absolute space and relative space. Absolute space is the, the physical distances, which are unchanging. But Marx makes very clear the relative spaces are changing all the time. And in fact, they're changing according to the revolutions that are occurring in the productive forces which attach to means of, of transport and communications. And this idea, I think, is very significant because it then kind of says proximity, which we've seen already in the preceding chapters, plays a very important role in, for example, management of, of, uh, of inventories and so on. 
the, the proximity depends very much on the relative space rather than the absolute space. I mean, the fact that uh, you know you go out here and you see cut flowers, and they come from Ecuador or somewhere. You know, well, hundred years ago, you probably would have seen cut flowers certain times of years, but they would just come from the, around New York because you couldn't fly them, you know, in refrigerated containers the way you can now. So, so the, the relative space of, of movement and motion has a lot to do with time and, and, and cost. So you can take perishable materials now, and perishable things, and trans, trans, you know, transport them many distances, you know, provided the cost of transportation is cheap enough. So one of the things that has been revolutionized in the history of capital, as, as Marx kind of says, is this necessity to pursue the perpetual annihilation of space through time, that is, conversion of, 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 of spatial magnitudes into temporalities. Because temporality is the measure of value. So that, you know, and this is, this is Marx's logic at work, and I think it's a very interesting one. So that doesn't mean that space is less, uh, less important, that it's annihilated and therefore you don't have to consider it. No. What it says is you have to consider spatiality now in terms of the relative locations uh, of one place to another. And that relative location is shifting. And in this chapter he starts to talk about, well, you know, before the railroads came, you know, relative space was constructed like this. After they came, you know, relative spaces are constructed like that. And places that were actually once you know, very significant and important, after the railroads came, if you didn't have a railroad came through you, then, then you're lost. You're no longer in, you know, the relative, your relative situation has declined. So it's possible for, for places to, to lose uh, relative uh, location. And relative location is, is not necessarily uh, continuous either. Uh, it, it doesn't work like that. I mean, it costs you as much to fly to Paris as it does to fl from New York as it does to, to fly to Ithaca. Uh, and, and you kind of go, well, you know, if I'm thinking about just simply the cost of movement, uh, time is different, but, but, but the cost, uh, if I think about the cost of movement, I think, well, you know, if I have a choice of going to Ithaca or Paris for the same amount, well, what am I going to do? So, so the space becomes topological also. I mean, it's often faster to, 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 to get to London than, than it is to, you know, go out Long Island on, on the expressway on a crowded, you know, summer Sunday. So, so the topological space is also, and, and, and actually what Marx talks about is the concentrations that can then occur because of the topological spaces. You have a place here which, you know, uh, suddenly draws all the traffic. And, and since it draws all the traffic, then, then uh, the efficiency with which it can handle the traffic up to a certain level of congestion, the efficiency should improve, and then they'll be diminishing. So, you know, like flying through Chicago is always a disaster, you know, so it's, it's, it's about its limit, you know, in terms of efficiency of movement. Um, so, so the, the, the spatiality starts, so, so you start to see the shifting spatialities. Uh, which are occurring, and he's being very explicit about this in, in this chapter, and it, and it plays, I think, a very uh, important role uh, 
as he starts by saying on 3.27, a permanently effective cause of differentiation in the selling time and hence in the turnover time in general is the distance of the market where the commodities are sold from their place of production. It's also going to be true about the distance from raw materials. Um, and this is where he, he says, improvement in the means of communication and transport shortens absolutely the period in which commodities migrate in this way, but it does not abolish the relative difference in the circulation time of different commodity capitals. So he's using a language here of absolute and relative, but he's using it in a somewhat different way than, than I am, because he's saying uh, the absolute time and the relative difference between how a means of communication handles, say, the transport of strawberries versus the transport of lum lumber. Uh, but then, as he goes on a little bit further, you start to see uh, another way in which relative and absolute can be understood. He says a bit further down, the relative differences may, however, be displaced by the development of the means of communication and transport in a way that does not correspond to the natural distances. For instance, a railway leading from the place of production to a major inland centre of population may lengthen the distance to a nearer inland point which is not served by a railway absolutely or relatively, in comparison to the one naturally more distant. Similarly, the relative distances of places of production from the major market outlets may be altered as a result of the same circumstances, which explains the demise of old centres of production and the emergence of new ones with changes in the means of transport and communication. Then he introduces the cost side of things. Uh, with the development of the means of transport, the speed of movement in space is accelerated, and spatial distance is thus shortened in time. This is the point, okay. In addition to this, the mass of means of communication develops. And again, the effect is you know, just-in-time systems, I mean, eff efficient transportation networks allow you to reduce inventories, and, and so you can just have the, the trucks come in and, and, and deliver in the morning what you need for that day, and the next morning they come in and deliver, so yeah, that's really very important. But then in addition to this, uh, the, the existence of structures of transportation, he says uh, about the middle of 328, at first the greater or lesser frequency with which the means of transport function, i.e. number of trains on a railway, develops with the degree to which a place of production produces more and becomes a major centre of production. And this is a development in the direction of, an or of the already existing market, i.e. towards the major centres of production and population, towards export ports, etc. What he's getting at here is what we now call agglomeration economies. That industry locates somewhere, and because the industry locates somewhere, there's means of transport there, and somebody says, well, those means of transport look good to me, I'm going to locate there. And because they locate there, then the more trains start to run on the thing, and then somebody says, boy, there's a frequent surface between port A and port B, you know, so I'll go there, and then, you know, and it goes on like this until the transport system is, is, is pretty much uh, saturated, in which case you then build a new one, you know, and it keeps on going. So what this, what this leads to, as he says, uh, is on the other hand, however, and conversely, this particular ease of commerce and the consequent acceleration of the turnover of capital, again, this, this facilitates a, rapid, a more rapid turnover of capital, Inasmuch as this is determined by the circulation time, gives rise to an accelerated concentration of both the centre of production and its market. All those industries come into some place, employ people, so it starts to become a market. The bourgeoisie lives there, it starts to become a market. 
So the market then draws in further functions, and so we get this tendency towards agglomeration of activities in, 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 in space. Uh, and with that, he says, with this accelerated concentration of people and capital at given points, the concentration of these masses of capital in a few hands makes rapid progress. This idea that, that actually there's some you know, correlation going on between, if you like, the, a, capitalist, a, a concentration of a capitalist class configuration in a particular city and the formation of the city through agglomeration economies, uh, an industrial city of that kind, is, is again an interesting kind of way to think of things. And then on top of 329, all branches of production which, owing to the nature of their product, are oriented principally to local markets, such as breweries, thus develop to their largest dimensions in the major centres of population. Here the rapid turnover of capital partly balances out the increase in the cost of many conditions of production, building land, he doesn't say it here, but rents and all the rest of it. Now the example of breweries is very interesting, I always like to use this example. You know, in the early 19th century, uh, in, in Britain, most beer was, uh, was rather sweet uh, and it was essentially consumed on the day it was produced or within a day or two. It didn't last, it, kind of, it usually kind of went bad after a bit. So you had a lot of small-scale breweries and then you started to get some concentration because they started to use uh, preservatives in the beer. So the beer uh, and, and the preservative they used was, was hops, uh, which is a natural preservative. But hops have a bitter taste, so one of the things you had to get used to is drinking bitter beers. And it's kind of very interesting about before that, people would have gone, yuck, ugh. But people acquired the taste of drinking bitter beers, and in fact it became called bitter. When I was a kid, you could still buy it mild and bitter, and the mild was, was a rather sweet kind of beer, and you'd have it mixed in with the bitter beer. Uh, the mild beer usually went bad after about a week, and so you had to be very careful drinking the mild beer because, you know, it could go bad, you know, whereas the bitter beer didn't because it had a lot of hops in it. Well, so, so hop cultivation became a big thing because it was a preservative. Now, if you can preserve the beer, you can take it for longer distances. So you went from a situation where actually you had neighborhood kind of local brew kind of stuff going on to actually having what Marx calls about, which is a large brewery in almost every city. And, and that brewery served the city. And, and the only beer you could drink in that city was that, that brew. And uh, so when I was a kid, uh, this was still the case, and I drank courage, and if you went to a city about you know, 20 miles away, you, you drank something called Shepherd Neem, you know, I mean... Then there started to be sort of financial consolidation going on, and then, then, then you start to see that suddenly the transport costs start to diminish. And you go from a situation of having local breweries uh, in the city so, uh, to, to, you know, other beers start to come in. I mean, I just can't imagine. I mean, when I was, a, you know, when I started drinking, which was underage, you know, you kind of, <laughs> like everybody, you know, so you had to go. There was one. There was one. Was living in three towns, you had to go one of the other towns, which was close by, in order to get a Guinness. I imagine bottled beer was different. I mean, draft beers, you know. You had to. Go, there was the only one bar, only one place in in the whole where you could buy Guinness. I mean, it's amazing to think of, you know. So you drank the local brew, and, and, and uh, you know, the joke was where well, you knew which city you were in by what, what you were drinking. 
and this was even true when I came to the United States in 1969. If, if I was drinking National Bow, I was in uh, uh, I was in Baltimore. If you were drinking Iron City, you were in Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, nobody nobody knew there were awful beers around like Coors and things like that because they were <laughs> stuck out in Denver and you know who heard of them anyway. But then 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 things started to really change. And I think this is very interesting, it's about the relative spaces and the relative cost of, of transportation started to change. And one of the big changes, of course, in the 1960s was containerization. So at that point you could actually uh, ship uh, beers all around the world. And you replaced hops, by the way, which are very labor-intensive and, and quite complicated, uh, with uh, chemical preservatives, so you no longer needed hops, but by then people had already got used to the bitter taste, so you know, you had to, you need you need hops for the taste now. They, they put hops in beer for taste, not for preservative reasons. But the, the coming of the preservatives and, 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 and the lowering of transport costs. Now there was a one funny kind of thing that went with it. I mean the British, you know, in India couldn't do without their beer, so they started to brew things in the Trent area called Indian Pale Ales, which are highly hopped, and they shipped them to India so the, you know, the colonial officers could sit there and quaff their beer. Um, and of course it was brewed in such a way that Americans can't understand, which is that it was brewed to actually taste good when it's reasonably warm. And I, and I was at a bar around here the other day where they sell one of those British beers and people were complaining how warm it was, and I was saying, well actually this is the temperature you're supposed to drink it at, you know, I mean. So the coming of refrigeration changed a lot of these relations, and, and, and if you want a very good book, we were talking about this, uh, William Cronin's book on, on Chicago, Nature's Metropolis, is a great book uh, because it's precisely about how space relations around Char Chicago were changing, uh, the coming of the railroads, the reduction of the costs of movement, but, but also one of the most important things was refrigeration. I mean when refrigeration came in you could actually ship meat from Midwest to East Coast. Before that it was very difficult to do. So what Marx is talking about here with this business of location of activities, but one of the things I, I also want to emphasize, this case of the beer, uh, what, it, what it actually said was that you, you had a lot of local monopolies. In other, in other words, I, I didn't have a choice when I was a kid as to what kind of, what kind of beer I could drink. I mean, this must, this must sound horrific to you, you know. But no, I mean, there was, a, there was only one beer and, and that, was, that was it. I mean, there were a couple of other places where you could get something. But basically, basically it was... It was so, so actually, what is important about competition, and, and Marx doesn't register this here, but is, I think, very important, is that spatial competition is always monopolistic competition. And that creates a very interesting kind of, kind of uh, world. Um, that spatial, if it's monopolistic competition, then the coercive laws of competition, which play a very important role in volume one, in the relative surplus value and all of that kind of stuff, don't work. In other, in other words, if my local brewery has no incentive to innovate at all, because the high cost of transport of bringing beer from outside protected it. So it was a bit like having a tariff barrier, a huge tariff barrier between you and the next city. And they had their beer and you had yours. And, and so there, was a lot, there were lots of local monopolies. And, and this would be true of bread, it would be true of all of those kinds of goods in the 19th century that they were protect, highly protected by local monopolies, as local monopolies which were spatial. 
as transport costs diminished, so actually the, the protection that came for local activities started to di gradually disintegrate, to the point where in the 1970s in, in particular, suddenly in, in beer brewing it all became, you know, pretty soon you could, you could get beers from West Coast or from Mexico and then now you can get them from, you know, China, if you want, to, and, and, and uh, Korea or whatever, you know, and I'm not simply talking about stuff that's made on license, I mean it's actually shipped from there. So, so suddenly, suddenly you go to a different kind of competitive world, as transport costs flatten out, as, a, you know, there's the annihilation of space by time, as Marx put it, so you actually alter the competitive landscape. And, and of course barriers to spatial movement also exist which are imposed by tariff barriers. So you also have something like the WTO which is trying to reduce tariff barriers so as you flatten the landscape again. And this is all about actually changing the, the structures of spatial competition, which means that capitalists have to find other ways to monopolize, because capitalists who are supposed to like competition hate it and much prefer to live in the world of monopoly control. But what Marx is, is, is doing here by talking about these spatial structures is actually talking about a landscape of capital accumulation uh, which is structured by the nature of the cost and time of overcoming the friction of distance. And that is constantly changing, as we know. And I, I always think it's, it's you know, these, these chapters, I think it's always important to ask yourself this, the, 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 the question, how many innovations in the history of capitalism have been about acceleration of turnover time? And how many innovations have been about reducing the friction of distance? I mean, where would we be right now if we were still, you know, riding horse and, horses and buggies and carts? Uh, in other words, there's, there's again, I think, one of, one of the geniuses, the, uh, 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 I think, genius things that Marx does is to point out to us the imperative, not only to make the world market, but also to have perpetual innovations in the productive forces which overwhelm space-time relations. Now, whether it gives rise to a cosmopolitan culture and a world literature and everybody kind of forgets nationalism, that's another kind of question, but actually the, the, the capital's impulse behind it, which is not necessarily the same as popular response, but capital, the impulse of capital is perpetually towards what I, what I call a sort of time-space compression, towards collapsing turnover times, working periods, as we saw in, 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 in the video, and, and also, you know, trying, trying to make it much easier to ship things around. And innovations there are, are terribly important. And I mentioned one which is the big unsung innovation internationally, which was, uh, of course, um, containerization. Uh, because one of the big costs of transport was, was transshipment. From, you know, boat came in and it had to be unloaded. Uh, stevedores, hundreds of them, were kind of putting it off and then putting it on trucks and then it went inland or putting it on rail flatbed trucks on the railroad and off it went. Uh, but you don't need to do that anymore. You have a container and, and, and the container's there, you just lift it off with the crane, you stick it on the truck and <laughs> you're out of there. Uh, and this is an incredibly efficient uh, form of movement which has actually revolutionized the, 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 the structure of uh, global industrial 
production. And we couldn't have seen the deindustrialization of the United States in the 1980s and the 1990s in the, to the degree we saw it if there had not been containerization around so that stuff could be shipped out or shipped in uh, very, very easily. So this chapter on circulation time then is I think a very important one, at least it is for me, and probably um, um, obviously uh, appealing to my geographical biases when I sort of uh, talk about it. But it's, but again, it's, a very, it's very clearly kind of laid out, but its implications are, I think, uh, are, are really uh, very, very significant. And what I, what I tried to do um, some years ago, back in the early 1970s, when I first encountered this and read all this stuff, was to say, well, you know, is there a way, is there a way in which you can take this argument and expand it very generally into an understanding of the, the whole kind of geographical dynamics of capital accumulation and what those geographical dynamics look like? And it turns out that it's not, it, even Marx had quite a lot of things to say about it in bits and pieces, so I ploughed through all of Marx's literature to see what he said and then stuck all the stuff together and kind of said, okay, here's, here's how Marx is looking at this whole kind of geographical structure stuff, which is not simply about waving a hand and kind of saying magically the world market appears, or there's an impulsion in that kind of fashion, but you can actually see some of the ways in which uh, the dynamics of capital accumulation uh, set things in motion. For instance, the whole kind of question of reinvestment. Where can you find opportunities for reinvestment? And, you know, well, can you find them in the place you are in? Or is there a necessity to start to move capital from here to somewhere else? And actually, again, what you see here is that there's a tendency towards over-accumulation of capital, you know, the surpluses of capital, which get built up in, say, in Britain, and at some point or other, it's impossible to, to find profitable outlets for them within Britain. So what do you do? Well, you ship it abroad. You ship it to Argentina and build railroads, or you ship it to the United States and you invest in things in the United States. Or you can't find a market for it, so you go and find some place and you, you, you turn it into a, an imperial place where you can have a privileged right to sell your goods. And actually there were two it was very interesting. There are two strategies to deal with, the, if you like, the continuous expansion of this system in space. Uh, one is to capture a space and, 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 and freeze it and then use it as a, as a captive market. In which case it doesn't add much dynamism to your own economy, because at some point or other that captive market has to pay for all of the stuff. So you get what Rosa Luxemburg talks about when she kind of says, well, the British had India uh, and they turned India into a market, they destroyed all the industries in India, uh, and it became a privileged market for Brit British cotton goods, but how are they going to pay for it? Well, they had to pay for it by manufacturing jute and cotton and things like that, but at some point rather that didn't enough, so what the British did was to say, all right, well, the Indians can grow opium and they sell opium to China, and then the, you would get all the silver will come out of China, go to India and come back to Britain. So, but this, this was one of the ways in which imperial activity was about the other way was to, to export capital and allow production to grow. And of course that's what happened in, in the United States. A lot of British capital came to the United States and, and became invested in production, loan capital coming here and building a new capitalist enterprise. 
And actually, the evidence, as far as I can tell, is that Britain got far more dynamism out of doing that in the US than it ever got out of the India trade. And, uh, you know, because it was a, a stagnant market, a static market, which was not growing, whereas the United States was, was, was a market that was growing and growing and growing. The trouble was, at some point, it grew to the point where it could outcompete Britain. Uh, but look what's happened between the United States and China. Okay, a lot of US capital has gone to, gone to China. Uh, and actually the deindustrialization of the United States has been arranged thanks to finance capital because it can flit around, as I've mentioned several times, it can flit around very easily. So it goes off to, uh, to, ch to China and, and uh, you know, sets up uh, production apparatuses in, in China. General Motors is there and you know, Walmart is there and you know, all the capitalist you know, corporations are there. So, 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 so they move there, and, and of course, that's one of, the, one of the things that's really booming right now. China's booming, you know, we're not. So, so the Chinese venture is, is probably more uh, constructive for American capital, uh, particularly the finance arm of American capital, but the trouble is that you create your own competitor, who will ultimately defeat you in competition. Uh, the United States defeated Britain in competition in the 19, by, you know, by the 1920s, 1930s. Uh, and, and now you know, China is, is, is defeating the United States in many areas of competition, as we've seen you know, with all the innovations that they're engaged in. So the export of productive capa capacity is one of the very important means by which uh, capital continues to accumulate. And it's through that mechanism, what I sometimes call a kind of a spatial fix, it's through that kind of spatial outflow that you start to get uh, the reconstruction of the, of the world market. So it's, in other words, it's not a magical thing that constructs the world market, it's, it's tangible activities of, of movement. And, and this whole kind of notion of the, the relative spaces of the global economy are, have been shifting radically over the last 150 years which is something kind of really curious because most economists I read when they talk about geography think of it as something that's fixed. They only think about the absolute space. And they say, well, geography doesn't change. You, know, you kind of go, well, wait a minute, relative spaces are changing all the time. And, and there's this big shift of wealth concentration that's, that went on from the 19th century onwards. And some people were kind of saying, well, you know, this had, you know, it had nothing whatsoever to do with geography because you know geography is fixed. You know, climatic belts don't change that much and all the rest of it, so it's all fixed. You kind of go, well, no, actually the big innovation in the 19th century was the coming of the railroads, which allowed the extraction of vast amounts of raw materials from all parts of the world so they could flow more easily to Britain and you could get from the ports in Britain to the industrial manufacturing areas, all those kinds of things. So this, be this, became, this became, if you like, part of the, of the whole, the whole uh, historical dynamic. So for me, anyway, the, the, the spatial dynamics are, 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 are very important and they're, they're actually laid out here, and I think in a very simple kind of language, but with implications which Marx doesn't really follow through in any great detail. But um, I, like I say, it's, it's possible to use uh, his, his arguments that as, he, as he begins to locate them here in relationship to circulation time and then start to talk, if you like, build it up into a picture of the, of the whole geographical uh, configuration. Okay, well I think we'll, we'll leave it there then. Now we're going to do chapters 15, 16 and 17 uh, for next time.